Welcome to the New Grace Sermon Podcast. New Grace exists so people experience new life in Christ. We invite you to connect with us on social media, at newgrace.cc on Facebook and Instagram. For more information or to support this ministry financially, visit us at newgrace.cc. We've been talking about not in this alone. That's what we've been talking about. We've been preaching this series, and I have the pleasure of concluding tonight. So just, 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 just a little recap. Um, our series verse is Genesis 2.18. And Genesis 2.18 says this. It says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. That's a true statement. It, it's good that the man not be alone. It's good that the woman not be alone. God made us relational creatures. And, and I'm stepping out on a limb here because I'm an introvert and I inside don't feel like I need any of you, but I do. Um, <laughs> It's true. It's true. Like, most of the time, people want to love me. I'm like this. You know what I mean? Got a trophy in my office like that. Just get off of me. But we do. We need each other. We do. Because we are relational. We are. During this series, though, we've been talking about discerning the value of Christ-centered relationships and why we don't have to do life alone. So I had to ask a question because I like to preach from sort of an interrogator standpoint. And my question is this, what, what does a Christ-centered relationship look like? What's it look like? I know, I know we've had examples over the last few weeks and, and we've hit a lot of good points, but what does that look like here tonight, right here in Commerce, Georgia? What does it look like to have a Christ-centered relationship? And I got to digging around and, and I think I found the perfect example in scripture to pull this out for you tonight. I want to read a couple verses of scripture in Acts 2, verses 1 and 2. It says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the privilege and opportunity to stand in front of your people. Lord, just to be able to take your word and share. God, tonight I pray that you would move every obstacle out of the way. You gotta make it easy for me, God you got to make it easy for me. Lord, Lord I, I pray that if there's anything within me that would hinder or quench your spirit, God, we cast that out. God, I, I pray for every heart and mind in this room in the next few moments, God, with all the things that can be wrestling inside of them, all the things they're dealing with, Lord, that we set those things to the side and we just invite your spirit in, God. Lord, we pray for anointing in this room tonight, Lord, God, that people could break through, they could get past the setback, Lord, and understand that it's just a setup. God, be with us the next few minutes, Lord. Lord, fill me up and allow me to speak your word, God. These things we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You're like, why'd you read Acts 2? I just gave us two verses of scripture. What's up with that, man? Well, let's, let, let's backtrack a little bit. Let me, let me give you a little filler. So for three and a half years, Jesus was the center of these people's lives. When we go to Acts 2, we're looking at the disciples in the upper room. So let's, let's go back. Let, let's backtrack a little bit. If you go back, let's say we go back to John 17. John 17, Jesus prays for his glorification. He prays for his disciples, but he also prays for the church that is to come. If you've never read John 17, you need to go home and read it tonight. It's beautiful. He's literally praying for his glorification. He's praying for the disciples that are present, and he's praying for you, and he's praying for me. That, that's what he's doing. And then shortly thereafter, they pass over a brook and they go into the Garden of Gethsemane. 
And you got to understand something now. These people that followed Jesus, they didn't just show up to a worship service once a week. They didn't just tag the name Christian on their chest and say, I'm good, I'll be around when I get ready, when I feel like it, when it, when it, when it, when it fits my circumstances and my situation. No, these people left everything to follow Jesus. They were nuts. In our terms, they didn't fall crazy. You got guys that left family-owned businesses, just walked away one day, just walked off. Their daddy over there like, where y'all going? We gotta fix these nets. They just walk off. You got a tax collector sitting at his job working for the Roman government. And Jesus says, hey, follow me. And he's like, all right. Sorry. Those are just a couple of the accounts we know. Think about the countless multitude of people who just dropped everything to follow Jesus. They were there when the water was turned into wine. They heard the parables. They were passing baskets on the hillside when he took some fish and a couple loaves of bread and fed everybody a McFish sandwich. They were there when Lazarus came out of the tomb. They were there. They were there for every teaching. They were there when he withstood the religious leaders of the day to the face and challenged them. They were there. They followed him and they walked with him. They were there in the garden that night when he was exceedingly pressed and his sweat became his blood. They were asleep when the temple guard showed up early that morning before the sun came up and apprehended Jesus. They were there when they came in and stole him like a thief in the night. They were there when they took him to the high priest's house. They were there when they buffeted him and threw a bag over his face and told him to prophesy. They were there when the temple guard smote him on the cheek. They were there when they drug him to Herod's house. They were there when they took him to Pilate. They were there when Pilate passed judgment and had him scourged. They seen a broken, bloody, beaten body in his tunic with a purple sash and a crown of thorns on his head. They were there when the crowd cried out for Barabbas and condemned Jesus to death. They were there when they put that crossbeam on his shoulders and they led him out of the holy city on that lonely road. They were there when people were pulling pieces of his beard out and spitting in his face. They were there. They, 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 they had to kind of mix in with the multitude, but they were there. They seen it, they heard it, they felt every lash. They were there when they got to that hillside outside the city called Golgotha. They heard that hammer hit that spike and go through his body. They heard his groaning. They saw the sweat from his brow mixed with blood going into his eyes. And they saw their master high and lifted up on that hillside that day. And they heard the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the well-to-do of the day ridiculing him and beriding him and telling him to save himself if he was the son of God. They seen the Roman guards gambling for his tunic at the foot of his cross. He was the center of their life for three and a half years. And they saw and they experienced all these things. And about the ninth hour of the day, the atmosphere changed on the hillside. And the sun was blackened out by dark rolling clouds and thunder. And Jesus raised his eyes to heaven and they were there and they saw it and they heard him. They heard him cry out to his father. But more importantly, they heard him say the most three powerful words in human history. They heard him say, it is finished. 
They heard it. They saw it. They experienced it. And Jesus gives up the ghost and all their hope, all their aspiration goes with him when he dies. Three and a half years I've dedicated my life to following this man, believing that he is the son of God. He is the promised one. He is the Messiah. And now he hangs on a tree, cursed, dead. They were there when they went and begged for his body. They were there when they took him off the cross. They were there when they wrapped his body in linen and anointed it with oil and spices. They were there when they laid him in a tomb and they were there when they put the stone in front of the door. They were there. But on the third day, on the third day, one of those, one of those people decided that she was gonna go down to the tomb real early that morning. Her name was Mary. And she was heartbroken and devastated by what they had done to Jesus. And she goes down to the tomb that morning before the sun comes up. And as she approaches the tomb, she notices that the stones rolled away from the tomb. And she's, she, she, she's terrified. She doesn't realize what's happened. And she runs back to the house and she wakes everybody up and she says, they've taken his body. We don't know where they've laid him. Somebody stole Jesus. John and Peter get in a foot race. John's the younger of the two, so he makes it to the tomb first. And shortly thereafter, Peter arrives, and Peter wastes no time. He goes straight into the tomb. This is a man that walked away from everything. Walks into the tomb, and he sees the grave clothes on the floor and the napkin folded and laid at the top. I wish I had time to go there. You see, Jesus left that napkin there because he knew Peter would know, hey, I'm coming back. I'm not here, but I'm coming back. Because when he seen that napkin, he knew that his master's body had not been stolen. He knew. And then all these things begin to come to remembrance over the last three and a half years of all the things that Jesus has said. And before you know it, they're all gathered together and Jesus appears. He appears. Now I want to show you something really interesting. Because from the time Jesus was arrested in the garden until the time they seen his glorified, resurrected body, Satan was systematically picking them off one by one. One by one. Matthew 26, 56 says, they all forsook him and fled. They all forsook him and fled. And when they encounter glorified, resurrected Jesus, the last command he gives them before he ascends into heaven in Acts 1, 4, this is what he says. He says, remain in Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father. And in Acts 2, we see 120 people gathered in an upper room on the day of Pentecost. And most of these people had walked with Jesus all the way till Golgotha. It's interesting what it says. It says, with one accord in one place. You know, church is a unifying thing. I know it doesn't feel like it in the 21st century. I know you don't get that vibe most of the time because everything's so commercialized and everything seems like one place is competing with another place. But church is meant to be a unifying thing. Back in John 17, when Jesus prayed for the church, he said, I want them to be one in love. That's what he said. Do you guys know what it means when we use the terminology upper room? Anybody in here ever had an upper room experience? See, now we're crossing denominational lines. Some of y'all getting uncomfortable up in here. Some of y'all got your religious face on. You're like, I don't know where he's about to go with this. Well, just, just hold on. I'm about to go. 
See, the upper room is significant because they were all gathered together. They had unity. They had unity. Now, in this church here, we like to think we have unity, and maybe we do to a certain extent, but when's the last time you called and checked on a widow? When's the last time you came down to the altar and prayed with somebody you didn't know? When's the last time you gave of yourself without expecting anything in return? When's the last time you just decided to sit with somebody and just be quiet? Praise God. Thank you for the sound of silence every once in a while. Sometimes just making yourself available, sometimes just going out of your way to exude and exemplify the love of Jesus goes further than any of your talents, gifts, or abilities. We done got so caught up in the church about what we think we can do, we done forgot what we supposed to do. I got one page of notes. It's supposed to be one, but Joe blew it up too big, so there's like one sentence on the other paper. I'm trying to preach to you from a place of practical application because I've gotten stuck in that hamster wheel about what can I do? What should I do? They're in that upper room, and they're gathered together. Now, 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 now you got to think about this. Before they seen resurrected Jesus, they were in hiding. They were waiting for the temple guard to come kick their door in and do the same thing to them that they just did to Jesus. They're terrified. They're afraid. So when Jesus is resurrected and they see him, and the last thing he says, I want you to go back to Jerusalem? What you talking about? I won't go to Jerusalem. Them folks crazy. I seen what they did to you. They go back. And he says, I want you to stay and wait for the promise of the Father. The promise of the Father was going to be the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And they're there in that upper room and they're waiting. And they're with one accord in one place. You see, if you want to talk about a Christ-centered relationship, let me give you a couple keys you need to look for because you need to look for Christ-centered people. You need to look for people who are willing to drop everything and go where Jesus is. You need to look for people who are willing to sacrifice things for the call of the ministry, for the call of what it is God's purpose in their heart to do. You see, there's a lot of people that want to be identified with Christ. There's a lot of people that claim Christ. They rep Christ. They got church merch on and all this other stuff, and they feel like they won with Christ. But a Christ-centered life is going to cost you everything. It will cost you your pride. It will cost you your ego. It's going to cost you your wants and your desires. It's going to cost you your dreams and your hopes. You say, my God, this is gloom and doom. No, it's truth. It is absolute truth. It's going to cost you. And I can't stand up here and tell you that it ain't because it is. You got to learn to die to self. Crucify that flesh you got a perfect example in this 120 and upper room. I said, Christ is the center of our lives. So what do Christ-centered people look like? Well, you need people that know how to wait on the promise of the Father. Everybody's so quick to run to something now. You know what I'm saying? Like, just run to it. Like, whatever's hot, whatever's fresh, whatever, whatever terminology y'all use, I don't know. But they just run to it like, oh, well, they're doing this, so maybe we should do that. Oh, wait, 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 wait. 
what's the promise of the Father? Like, 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 where's God in the equation? You need people that know how to wait on the promise of the Father. More importantly, you need people that will stay when everyone else leaves. You need people that despite the odds, despite the situation or the circumstance, they're gonna plant their feet and stand firm. They'll stand with you. They'll stand for you. Christ-centered people do not run from adversity. They are not afraid of diversity. Christ-centered people are centered in the love of Christ. And I can promise you, where you find the love of Christ, you're gonna find trouble, you're gonna find hurt, you're gonna find heartache, it's messy, it's dirty. You don't just get to do ministry on Sunday and check your box and say, well, I did it. No, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. It costs you something. You will get dirty, you will get bloody. You will walk away from it feeling empty sometimes. Maybe I ain't preaching to nobody but myself, that's fine. That's all right, that's all right, I'm almost done. You need people who pray. And I ain't talking about blessed heavenly father, thank you for this food. Man, forget your food. I'm talking about people that'll labor in prayer with you. I'm talking about people that will yoke up with you when don't nobody else want to be around you and pray for you, will call down heaven for you, will cry and labor for you. Maybe it's just because I'm getting old, but man, I'm so tired. I'm so tired of all this, this shallow surface level stuff. I'm gonna tell on my small group. See, y'all didn't even know I had a small group unless you're in it. I put my small group on blast today. I had no idea it was coming. They come to my house. We spent about 60 to 90 minutes together. They came in and sat down. I said, I don't wanna talk a whole lot today. They're like, what? I don't wanna talk a whole lot today. We went through our curriculum. I pulled a chair out in the middle of the floor. I told him, I said, everybody in this group's gonna sit in that chair and you're gonna give everybody else one thing to pray for before you leave. And the rest of us are gonna lay hands on you and we're gonna pray. You should have seen those people. I ain't never coming back to his house. Pulled that big old country chair out in the middle of the floor right there in my kitchen. Somebody told me, she said, these chairs got wide bottoms for big bottoms. I said, yeah, I know. Anyways. <laughs> it's true. I mean, they start sitting down and we start laying hands and praying. Because you need people in your life that will pray for you, pray over you, and pray with you. You need people that are sitting in these chairs waiting for somebody to come to the altar. You see, y'all done got so conditioned to the way we do things that we got to be creative about how we do things. At the end, everybody going to pray and they're going to come down here and we're going to be waiting for them to get done so we can go home. You, you need to be expecting to come pray with somebody. People who come down to this altar should expect to feel a hand on a shoulder. They should expect somebody that they don't know to come pray for them because Christ-centered people pray for other people. They praise. You need people who know how to praise because life's hard. It's a struggle. 
It is. You need people who know how to praise. You need people who are unashamed to let you know how much they love God. That are unashamed to let you know how good God is, even when it's bad. You need people that will stand in a room and make an absolute fool out of themselves by giving God glory and adoration and love. If you come in here to get full, you come for the wrong reason. If you come in this room, you should come with the expectation of being slap wore out and empty when you leave. Because even if you can't pray with nobody, you can still praise. I mean, some of y'all, you, 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 you on the level where you... You'll clap like, like you at the masters. You'll stare at the floor. I know you're praising internally. I get it. It's a struggle against your flesh. I'm not picking at you. It's a struggle against your flesh. And when you begin to graduate past that, those hands will start going a little bit higher. They'll start going a little bit higher because you need people who praise. God wants people who praise. This church needs people who praise. And as you start graduating, one day you'll get the full liberation. Didn't even realize your shirt was so short, your belly button hanging out, just loving on the Lord. Woo! Just singing your heart out. Singing your heart out. Loving God, praising, just loving him. And let me tell you what'll happen. God will use you in that moment of complete abandonment and adoration of him, and somebody will go, I wish I had that. I wish I need that. I need that. And you're discipling someone, and you don't even realize it. You're playing a part in somebody's spiritual growth, and you don't even realize it. Because you need people who can pray and praise. You do. You do. You need people who participate. They participate. There ain't no secret that I'm an introvert. It ain't. I don't mind. I need people who participate because people who participate motivate me. Because even to this day, I still wrestle with, do you really want me to do that? Like, you sure you want me to close this series? Like, you know me better than just about anybody in this room. Like, you sure you want that? But when I see people participate, it motivates me. It speaks to me because if you can pray and praise and participate, then why can't I? Why can't I? Like, if you can go pray for somebody you don't know, then maybe I can go pray for somebody I don't know. If you can praise and not give a rip what anyone else thinks, well, maybe I can too. And then you decide to take up your time your talent and your treasure and participate in what God's doing, I, I can do that too. You see, because this church is a body and this body fits together, as Paul says in Ephesians, and every part complements the other part. You know, for the longest time, for the longest time, people tried to convince me that I was the mouth. You don't want that. You don't want that because I'm not going to spare your feelings. No, no, no. No, I, I learned a couple years ago. I'm not the mouth. I'm the eyes. I'm part of the eyes. It's my job to see things and discern and to give counsel. 
And when I do this, I'm doing this on complete dependence of God. You don't know the prayer that got prayed out there in the Cadillac. You have no idea. Boy, it's a hot mess in my car right now. But I'm the eyes. Some of you are eyes. Some of you are hands. Some of you are feet. Some of you are muscle. Some of you are thinkers. But we all need people. We need Christ-centered people that pray, praise, and participate. I want to tell you a story, and I'm going to close. I got saved in my early 20s. I'm a statistic. Like, normally if you don't get saved by the time you're 18, you just don't. I was 21-ish. It's kind of blurry. You didn't know me before Jesus. It's okay. But I got saved and went to this little country church, country preacher, country people, just good people. And I remember they were having this thing, this, this, this men's dinner thing at this place. Anybody know where Pocatalico, Georgia is at? Praise God, y'all all saved. If you don't, look it up when you get home. It's like a, it's like a speck. They're having this men's dinner in Pocatalico, Georgia. I didn't even know I lived close to Pocatalico, Georgia, but I do. And we were going to this fox kennel. You say, a fox kennel? Yeah, these guys were fox hunters. Old school Christians. Like, wear them overalls and stuff to church. Old godly men. Like, I mean, old school godly men, boy. They, they, they could help you. They could help you, but boy, you get out of line... They're going to straighten you up real, real quick. So we go to this fox kennel, and the house is about the size of the men's room back there. And there's like 90 of us just sitting on top of one another in there. And I'm trying to figure out what in the world am I doing here. Like, and we're eating, and, and, and we're having a good time. And then there's a moment in the evening where everything kind of slows down. And this... This, 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 this old man, he stands up in the middle of the room and he looks across the room and everybody gets quiet. And he looks at a fellow across the room and he says, lead us in prayer. And every head bows and every eye drops and every man in that house starts praying out loud. And I'm standing there like speechless. I'd never been in an environment like that before. I'd never experienced anything like that before. Never, ever had I ever been exposed to something like that before. And out of sheer, utter shock and amazement, I just closed my eyes and bowed my head. And it was that moment, it was that moment that kick-started the trajectory of my Christian walk. Being in an old, smelly house with a bunch of old men now I'm an old man. Like, he's crazy. And they're pouring out their hearts to God. They're praying unashamed. They're praising while they're praying. And all of these men participate in the church. Because this just wasn't one church. There was like five churches up in that house. Five different representatives. And they're praying. And I remember I went to every single one they had. And then one time I was so proud because I'm standing on the other house. And that brother looked at me and he said, lead us in prayer. And I was like, oh. And all I got out was Heavenly Father, and everybody started praying. 
I didn't know anything. I couldn't tell you where the Gospel of Matthew was or how it was different from the book of Genesis. I knew absolutely nothing. They bought me a Bible. They bought me a Bible, had my name put on the front of it. Well, that's hot stuff, man. I got, boy, I got my name on my Bible. I still have that Bible. It's in my office at home, and it's literally falling apart because in those early years of my Christian walk, I wore that thing out. I wanted to learn and know as much as I could, but here's why. Because I got surrounded with Christ-centered people. Christ-centered people. They weren't perfect people. They weren't always lovely and nice, but they were Christ-centered people. They knew who they were in Christ, and they knew what they believed, and they knew what they stood for. And they were centered in Christ. And it changed my life. It changed my life. You see, you all need people that will take you to an upper room. And if you don't think you do, then reconsider. Because everybody in here needs people that will be willing to take them to an upper room. People who have centered their lives in Christ. Centered their lives in Christ. I like this right here. It says, <laughs> and suddenly there came a sound from heaven, a sound of mighty Russian wind. Come on up here, JJ. I'm finished. You need people that can discern the sounds. You need people that can discern the conversations. You need people that speak life. You need people who speak truth. You need people who know how to walk and exercise in love. And not, not 21st century love, but biblical love. You want to know how the church is supposed to treat each other and how we're supposed to act? Go home and read 1 Corinthians 13. There's your homework. Because those aren't pretty words that we just read at a wedding while somebody who's in love with somebody else and don't really realize what they're getting into is just like, I'm going to love you forever. Boy, what you talking about? Six months. First Corinthians 13 is instructions to the church. It tells us how we're supposed to treat each other. It tells us how we're supposed to work with one another. It tells us how we're supposed to love each other. You need people who can discern the sounds, the conversations and the intentions. You need people around you that can look at you and say, in love, hey, you shouldn't do that. In love, that's not right. In love, hey, respect your boundaries. You need that. You might not want it, but that doesn't change the fact that you need it. You need people who can discern the sounds. There was a sound that came from heaven like mighty rushing wind. And it says it filled the room. It filled the room. Christ-centered relationships will leave you filled. See, most of y'all come in here to get filled, and you're starving to death. You have no power to fight the enemy outside of these doors. You're wrapped up in your circumstances and situations. You have no answers, and you feel powerless, and you feel hopeless and depressed, and you just wonder, how come no one notices me? How come nobody talks to me? How come nobody's come up and asked me how I'm doing? I feel like I'm invisible. If I, if, if I left today, no one would ever notice. You know how relationships work, right? My Bible tells me to let your request be made known. 
If that's you, who have you told? Who have you gone to? Because these relationships, they're built on more than just trust. They're built on more than just understanding. They're built on Christ. They're built on Christ. Christ Christ-centered relationships will leave you filled. So every relationship you have in your life that depletes you and takes away from you is not a Christ-centered relationship. Every little shawty you talking to, boy, that leaves you feeling like trash is not a Christ-centered relationship. Every little boy that's hitting you up in your DMs, ladies, that makes you feel less than is not a Christ-centered relationship. I don't care what he tells you because Christ-centered relationships leave you filled. It filled the room and it filled those 120 people in the room. They were one accord in one place and they were filled and they had anointing and power that fell from heaven and it turned the world upside down. So what do you want to do with that?